Welcome, everybody. So glad that you are here. I'm really excited about tonight. I've been looking forward to this in part because tonight I'm going to be in full-on Dr. Jones mode, and I'm not even going to apologize for it. Okay, so we're going to have a really good time. And honestly, the reason that I'm here, the reason we're doing this is that this year as a church, we believe God is, is calling us to go deep. This is a year for us to, to go deeper in our discipleship to Jesus by going deeper into the story of the Bible. And over these weeks of January and February, in our Sunday morning sermons, we're talking about the story of the Bible from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. But one of the things that I realized that when you, when you do that, when you talk about the big story of the Bible, um, there are inevitably some really big and really difficult, really challenging questions that come up. And for us to, to cover the story of the Bible, but not to address those difficult questions um, could really be problematic. And so I thought, what, what better venue than to come and to, to be with the young adults, many of whom are the ones that are really the most wrestling with some of these questions. Honestly, I grew up in an environment where a lot of these things just were taken for granted. A lot of these things were never really questioned. And yet the young adult generation more and more is, is wrestling with deep questions about our faith. And even tonight, as we talk about the creation stories of the Bible, as we talk about the relationship between faith and science, we have to acknowledge that, that these questions are for some the reasons that they're walking away from their faith. And that these questions are for others the barrier for them to even consider the faith. And so these are questions that we must address I'm thrilled to get the chance to address them with you tonight. I think we're going to have a good time. We're going to cover a lot of ground. I'm watching my clock already ticking down. So we've got a, a long way to go and a short time to get there. And there's uh, only a few of you in the room who might recognize that reference. But we'll, uh, we'll keep moving past that. I'll never forget a conversation that Kim and I had when we were dating. We were in our early 20s, uh, both of us finishing up college. And, uh, and, and one night we just had this very unforgettable conversation. And it went something like this. She looked at me with a really puzzled look on her face and said, you believe in dinosaurs? Now, she had grown up in a Christian environment that actually believed that, 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 that dinosaurs were, were fiction, that it was made up, that, that it was just some kind of conspiracy theory by, by the, the atheistic scientific community to try to dupe us, that the world is millions or billions of years old, that, that, that dinosaurs never existed. That, that's the world that she grew up in, and, and this is where I grew up. Uh, some of you that have been around the Metroplex for a while may recognize this. This is the old uh, Muse Fort Worth Museum of Science and History. And when I was a kid, my mom uh, worked there in the, the history department. And that meant, especially in the summers, I spent hours and hours and hours roaming around the, the halls of the Museum of Science and History. And this was one of my favorite spots. Um, this was the place where these, these two dinosaurs, an allosaur and a camptosaur, that are locked in battle. And, and the little description said that these, these dinosaurs that were battling, that, that they lived about 150 million years ago. That's the world that I grew up in. Now, I grew up in Sunday school. I grew up in church. And yet, there never really was a tension between those two things. Oftentimes, because the tensions just never really got addressed. But... but this is the kind of environment in which we find ourselves, the tension between faith and science, between what the Bible says and, and what the scientists say. And sometimes we feel as though we're forced to choose. Sometimes we feel as though we're forced, believe the science or believe the Bible. And part of my agenda tonight is just to, to, to convince you that that at the end of the day, I, I believe that's a false choice, but, but it's also not that simple. It's not so simple just merely to assert that. So I want to walk with you through some of the dynamics of that. But the first thing that I, I want to just establish is the fact that, that within Christianity, there, there is an, and really always has been a, a kind of wide spectrum of views about the creation story. A wide spectrum of views about the relationship between faith and science. And what I want to establish right up front is the idea that Christian orthodoxy allows for there to be a spectrum of views. 
I would imagine that even in a room like this, there's a spectrum of views. And I just want to say, I think that's okay. The concept of orthodoxy, um, uh, uh, one uh, early church father from the fifth century said, orthodoxy is that which is believed always, everywhere, by all. Right? It's, it's what universally Christians affirm. And the boundaries of orthodoxy, traditionally, historically, for Christianity has been established by the great historic creeds of the faith. And uh, probably chief among those is the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed begins with this affirmation. And I, I just actually would like for us to affirm this together. So with a little gusto, would you affirm these words with me? Even if you're not sure you actually believe them, just for fun, let's affirm this together, okay? We believe in God, the Father, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Now, there's a whole lot of room for disagreement about the details, but this is what we all affirm together, that we believe in God the Father, the Almighty, who is the maker of heaven and earth, of everything that exists, seen and unseen. Orthodoxy is like a big backyard where there's lots of room for us to, to move around. There's room for us to have disagreements and multiple perspectives, but this is what we have to hold together. We believe that God is ultimately the source of all that exists, both seen and unseen. But when we come to think about this, we have to recognize that there are, in fact, multiple approaches to this relationship between faith and science, right? Um, and so I want to just walk with you briefly through these various views. And then I, what I want to do is I want to take you actually to the text of Scripture and see, does Scripture actually help us to think about how we navigate these various views? And so first, you can think of this on a spectrum, and so I'll begin over here with what's referred to as young earth creationism. Young earth creationism um, is a Christian view that, that teaches that the, the Bible, the claims of Scripture, that the, 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 the universe, that the earth is about 6,000 years old, a young earth, about 6,000 years old. And um, they come to that conclusion based on a literal reading of Genesis 1, that God created the, the heavens and the earth. He created the universe in six literal 24-hour days about 6,000 years ago. And they get to this number 6,000 by actually working through some of the Old Testament genealogies to, up to the time of Jesus and then about 2,000 years from Jesus to now. And so they come up with a dating of the earth, the universe, is 6,000 years old based on a literal reading of the book of Genesis. Now, this view um, that holds this literal reading of the book of Genesis then basically um, disregards or, or abandons most of mainstream scientific teaching. Mainstream scientific teaching, the, the, the near consensus among most mainstream scientists is that the universe is about 14 billion years old, that the earth is about 4.5 billion years old. And so young earth creationists reject that evidence, suggesting either the evidence itself is wrong or the interpretation of the evidence is wrong. And the idea is the Bible always trumps the the, the evidence. The, the Bible always trumps the, the science. It, it, it is a preeminent view of the Bible. Now, second view on from there is what we might refer to as old earth creationism. Old earth creationism um, concedes the, the mainstream view in terms of the age of the universe, the age of the earth, that the earth is really, really old. Um, but they get there by suggesting that what we have in Genesis 1 when, it's re when it refers to the days of creation, aren't literal 24-hour days, but rather a day-age, the day-age view, the idea that, that there could be, in fact, many, many uh, long periods of time referred to in the Bible as a day, and it's ultimately not then until you get to the sixth day, the creation of human beings, that we get more recent history. So all of that ancient history, those dinosaurs that I showed you a minute ago, that all falls within this sort of day-age views, long, undetermined periods of time captured by the days in Genesis. Now, while this view affirms a lot of um, uh, mainstream science, it does reject the idea of, of natural selection and the idea of common ancestry, right? According to this view, every species that exists, exists as a distinct creation of God, that God miraculously intervenes in his creation 
to create each individual species, right? That's old earth creationism. A kind of middle view is what's referred to as intelligent design. Intelligent design doesn't actually take a position with regard to the days of Genesis 1, doesn't take a position with regard to the Bible. Intelligent design tries to focus specifically on the science and the evidence from science. And intelligent design affirms a lot of mainstream scientific views, the age of the universe, the age of the earth. But where intelligent design differs from some others is with regard to the idea of natural selection and common ancestry. The idea that, that every living thing evolves from a common ancestor. Intelligent design focuses on the idea of what they refer to as irreducible complexity. That is, that the, the design features in the various species of existing living things is so complex that you never could get there merely by an unguided process of natural selection. And so rather, they focus on the idea that the complexity of the design implies that there is an intelligent designer behind it all. Um, again, this view tries to focus on the science and really doesn't take a particular position with regard to the Bible. That is intelligent design. Next on the spectrum would be what's referred to as um, evolutionary creationism or theistic evolution. This view basically uh, embraces the teaching of science, the teaching of mainstream science, agreeing with mainstream science with regard to the age of the earth, with regard to the age of the universe, with regard to the idea of natural selection and common ancestry. Now, this is a view that says God works through the process of evolution, that, that actually the, the teaching of science is God's revelation to how he set the world up, how he operates and that um, we don't have to find a disagreement between faith and science, but these two things are operating in separate realms. Um, those who affirm this view simply suggest that the, 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 the Bible is an ancient text written to an ancient audience that addresses theological issues, but doesn't address the specifics of, of how and when God created the earth. And so we can look to science to answer those kinds of questions. And then on the far end of the spectrum, a view that is not a Christian view is what's referred to as scientific naturalism. Naturalism is just the teaching, the, the, the worldview, really, that nature is all there is. It's the teaching that, that, that there is no God, that nature is all there is, and that, and that science trumps everything. Science is the ultimate way that we can know truth. And so this view... Um, rejects the Bible. This view rejects the idea that there is a God that's involved in creation, that's involved in the world. Now, what's important to recognize is that the, the positions on either end, in a lot of ways, actually wind up agreeing with each other. Because the positions on either end are the positions that, that essentially um, draw that line in the sand between faith and science, forcing, in a sense a choice between the two. Now, there, there may be some of you in the room who hold really strongly to young earth creation views. And uh, I understand how people get to that place. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about it even as we get into the text. So I don't mean to, to present that as merely a sort of view to be dismissed out of hand. And yet, um, where a lot of folks find themselves wrestling is how do we actually make sense between the teaching of the Bible and what we find when we come to mainstream science. And I would just say, I think there's a particular kind of caution that's in order with regard to dogmatic views about what the Bible must teach as it relates to this tension between faith and science. And the reason I think that we ought to be really cautious about that is because we can learn from history. We can learn by looking back and seeing some um, beloved figures from the Christian past who got a little bit too dogmatic in their views about what the Bible must teach. This is John Calvin from the 16th century, the, the great Christian reformer, the Protestant reformer of the 16th century, John Calvin, who heard about this guy, Nicholas Copernicus, who was beginning to say that, that it seemed as though maybe, maybe the earth actually was what was moving and the sun was standing still, right? And, and, and Calvin and others thought, this is ridiculous. Here's what Calvin says. He says, those dreamers who have a spirit of bitterness and contradiction, 
who reprove everything and pervert the order of nature, right? Teaching that the earth revolved around the sun, Calvin said, is perverting the order of nature. We will, uh, we will see some who are so deranged, not only in religion, but who in all things reveal their monstrous nature. That they will say that the sun does not move and that it is the earth that shifts and turns. When we see such minds, we must indeed confess that the devil possesses them and that God sets them before us as mirrors in order to keep us in fear. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but does anybody in the room tonight believe that the earth moves around the sun? I'm I'm, I'm guessing that there are a few of us. Calvin says, we're perverting the order of nature that we're possessed by the devil, right? Because the the Bible teaches that the sun is what moves and the earth stands still. And we must believe this because we believe the Bible. Another great 16th century reformer, same time period, Martin Luther. He says this, he says, there's this talk of a new astrologer, which catch that right off the bat. He refers to them as as this new astrologer who wants to prove that the earth moves and goes around instead of the sky, the sun and the moon. Just as if somebody were moving in a carriage or ship might hold that he was sitting still while the earth and the trees walked and moved. The fool wants to turn the whole art of astronomy upside down. However, the Holy Scripture tells us. So Joshua bid the sun to stand still and not the earth. And do you see what's happening here? Here are great, beloved, respected Christian figures who are saying this is what the Bible teaches. And therefore, we must reject the evidence of science. The evidence of science that now is nearly universally accepted that in fact, we are in a, a heliocentric, right? That, that the earth revolves around the sun and the sun is standing still. We have to be very careful not to get so caught up in and dogmatically asserting what the Bible teaches that we wind up sounding like Luther and Calvin. I think we would actually do better to go back a little further in Christian history and learn from the great... Um, North African bishop of the 6th century, St. Augustine, here's what Augustine says when talking about our reading of Genesis. He says, in discussing obscure matters that are far removed from our eyes and our experience, which is patient of various explanations, right? A variety of explanations are possible. He said that that we we have to be careful that we do not contradict the faith that we are imbued with. Let us never, if we read anything on them in the divine scriptures, throw ourselves head over heels into the headstrong assertion of any of them. Perhaps the truth emerging from a more thorough discussion of the point may definitively overturn that opinion. Do you see what happened? That's what happened with regard to the movement of the sun around the earth versus the earth around the sun. Right? Perhaps the truth emerging from a more thorough discussion of the point may definitively overturn that opinion. And then we will find ourselves overthrown, championing what is not the cause of the divine scriptures, but our own. In such a way that we want it to be that of the scriptures. When we should rather be wanting the cause of the scriptures to be ours. Right? Do you, do you see what he's suggesting? He's suggesting that we hold a a certain measure of humility when we come to these kinds of questions. Rather than being so determined that our understanding and interpretation of the Bible is right, that we actually wind up rejecting truth that that God is revealing in nature. The caution that he offers is precisely that which the later reformers were uh, guilty of not heeding. So how do we then think about what we find here in the Bible. And I hope that you brought a Bible with you tonight, maybe. Uh, If you did, turn with me to Genesis chapter one, because I want us to then focus in on actually what's here in the creation stories. And when we do that, I think a big part of what we have to recognize, right? A big principle that we have to always keep in mind when we read the Bible is that the Bible is written for us 
but not to us. Right? The Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. What does that mean? Somebody, let's do a little, little interaction here. What, what does it mean to say the Bible is for us, but it's not to us? What do you think that means? Yeah. Yeah, right. So who is it written to? Maybe that's a better way of even getting at this. Who's it written to? Okay, humanity. That's, but that's part of what it means that it's for us. But who was, the, who was it originally written to? To a specific audience. Yeah, to the specific ancient audience, right? When you, when you read uh, the book of Ephesians, who is it written to? It's written to the church, the first century church in Ephesus. So to understand what's going on in Ephesians, you have to understand a little bit about what's happening in first century Ephesus. Colossians to the first century church in Colossae. So when we come to Genesis, who is it written to? Well, the traditional view is it's written by Moses to the people of Israel in the period of wandering in the wilderness after leaving slavery in Egypt, but before entering into the promised land. So the, the, this ancient book is written to an ancient people in an ancient cultural context. And that while it's for us, it says a lot of things that are important for us and for our lives, we have to understand something about who it was written to in order to really understand what's going on. We have to understand the ancient people, the ancient author, the ancient audience, the ancient culture that helps us then to understand the complexity of what's happening here in the book. Um. My little clicker is not clicking now. What happened, Kevin? Uh-oh. Did I do that? Uh, let's see. Can I go back one? Yeah, here we go. Janet Kellogg Ray, who's a biologist, um, she actually teaches at the University of North Texas, and she has a, a fun little book. The title, at least, is fun, Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark. Now, don't let the title fool you. This is actually a serious science book. But, but she says something important when she says, every one of the Bible writers lived long before modern science existed. The writers of the Bible were authentic members of their own pre-scientific time, and of their own pre-scientific culture, writing to a pre-scientific people. The kinds of answers that we find in Genesis are not scientific because the Bible is not a science book. When Genesis is read with ancient eyes, we don't learn about modern science, but we do learn about God, right? This is an ancient book written by an ancient author to an ancient audience. Now, as Christians, we believe it's more than that, right? We believe that ultimately this, this, is, this, this comes to us from God. It is inspired by God. And yet, it's not less than that. It's not less than an ancient book written by an ancient author to an ancient audience. And so understanding something of that author, that audience, and his agenda for the people that he was writing to. And here's what you need to know before we actually dive into the text itself is the agenda of the author of Genesis isn't so much about when and how, but about who and why, right? With our modern 21st century scientifically oriented way of thinking, we come to this text, we come to a discussion of creation primarily preoccupied with the questions of when, when did it happen? How long ago, right? All those views that I laid out earlier are all about when things happen. When and how. How did it happen? But that's not the focus of the Genesis storyteller. The focus of the Genesis storyteller is who. Who did it and why? And do you understand that if you come to a story asking questions about when and how, when the story is really about who and why, you're going to get your signal's crossed. The way I talked about it on Sunday, if you were here, is like going to Harry Potter to learn how to do magic tricks at your niece's birthday party, right? You're not gonna find, there's a lot about magic in Harry Potter, but you're gonna be a bust at the birthday party if you're going there looking for answers about how to do card tricks for nine-year-olds. So we wanna step back 
and say, okay, what, what's here in this ancient text from this ancient author to his ancient audience? And here's where I want to dive in. But before I, in order to dive in, I'm going to need somebody who's really feeling a bit courageous tonight who would like to be a reader. I need a reader who's uh, comfortable reading publicly and ready to sit up here and do this with me. And if I don't get a volunteer, I'll call on somebody, but I got a volunteer. All right, what's your name? Carson, Carson, let's welcome Carson. He's going to come up here on the stage. Thanks, Carson. So you're going to sit right over there. We got the passage marked out for you. And what I'm going to have you do, and you guys can follow along with Carson as he reads, but I'm going to have you read, and I'm just going to pause you along the way, all right? Okay. And I'll give you some instructions. So just be ready for me to jump in and hit pause, and you just wait right there, and then I'll tell you where to pick up, okay? okay Does that sure. make sense? All right, everybody ready? You got your Bible ready to go? Genesis chapter one, beginning in verse one. Carson, take it away. In the beginning. Stop. (laughs) In the beginning. In the beginning is the way the Bible starts. It, It talks about this time in the beginning when everything started, when everything began. This seems to be here in Genesis one, what theologians refer to as creation ex nihilo. Ex nihilo, this little Latin phrase that means out of nothing. That in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, there wasn't anything, and then there was something because God made it in the beginning. Now, here's what's really interesting to note. When the Big Bang Theory began to emerge as the predominant theory in uh, the scientific community about the beginnings, the origins of the universe, do you know the people who are most resistant to the Big Bang Theory? Atheists. The people who are most resistant to the Big Bang Theory, when it began to emerge as the predominant theory, were atheists. Why? Because prior to that, the the predominant theory was that the universe had always existed. And now suddenly there's emerging evidence that said, no, the universe actually had an origin point. It all started somewhere in the distant past. And the people that resisted that teaching were atheists because then they'd have to account for how things got started, how something came from nothing. You can think about it this way. Both atheists and Christians believe in a virgin birth. Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, our Savior. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. And I don't mean that as like a gotcha. It's just the reality. Part of that worldview is the suggestion that that the whole universe, that everything came from nothing. And that was originally resisted, the idea of the Big Bang, because it taught that there was a beginning. Um, Carson, why don't you, Carson, right? Yes. Make sure I got it right. Okay, start back at the beginning of verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, stop right there. (laughs) Carson's like, oh man, we're going to be here a little while. Don't worry, I'm watching the clock, right? Um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Great opening line. The the, the Bible is a great story and it has a great opening line. Like all great stories have a great opening line, right? Like uh, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, right? What's that from? Tale of Two Cities. Um, Two houses, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene. Romeo and Juliet. Um, call me Ishmael. Moby Dick. Yeah. All right. Some of you are like, you're 0 for 3 so far, right? Um, how about this one? That same I am, that same I am. I do not like that same I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. All right. We got that one. All right. The Bible's a great story and it has a great opening line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and earth is a figure of speech called a merism. And a merism is this and that and everything in between. So this is just the Bible's way of saying God created the heavens and the earth and everything in between. God created all that exists. That it's ultimately found, it's sourced in the one true God, the, the God of the Bible. Now, here's what I want you to um, note from the beginning. Uh, I didn't mean a pun there, but I suppose there is one. Um, this first verse of the Bible has seven words, not in the English text, but in the, if you look back at it in the Hebrew, it's got seven words in the first verse. And seven is kind of a big deal in the Bible. Seven is the sort of divine number, this number of perfection. 
Seven is going to show up through the seven days of creation. And seven finds its way throughout. In fact, not only is the first verse of the Bible seven words, the second verse of the Bible, 14 words, which is seven times two. And you actually find this pattern throughout this account that that, that we've got something going on here in the way that the storyteller is crafting the story. This is a very highly stylized way of depicting creation. In fact, if you know the way the story's gonna go, you know the way it goes from here is, and God said, and God said, and God said, let there be, let there be, let there be, and there was, and there was, and there was. It was good, it was good, it was good. Now, um, there's this rhythm that pulses through this account of creation. Uh, it, It comes off almost like, poetry. And we know what Hebrew poetry looks like, and it doesn't exactly look like this, but it feels almost like it's poetry. Seven words, 14 words, this rhythm, this repetition. It it really comes across like a liturgy, like something that maybe the community would say together, that they would memorize, that they would recount this story of God's creative work. But it's highly stylized. And here's what I would say. My view in terms of Genesis 1 is that Genesis 1 is a highly stylized account of a real um, historical event. It's a highly stylized account. And we're going to see how some of this style works itself out as we continue to move on. Okay, Carson, uh, start in verse 1 again and then move on from there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Pause. Okay. This little phrase, formless and empty. In Hebrew, it's tohu va vohu. And va is just the conjunction, and. Tohu, formless, and vohu, empty. Or it could be translated as chaotic and uninhabitable. Now that's really interesting, isn't it? Because in verse 1, we seem to have creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in verse 2, that's not what we have, is it? There's actually something there. The earth was tohu vavohu, was formless and empty, was chaotic and uninhabitable. And it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, I'm going to do something in the next few minutes that's ridiculous, Okay? Are you you able to hang with me through something really ridiculous? You're going to see as this goes along, I am not, not an artist, okay? And that's going to become very apparent. But I'm going to draw something for you because I want you to be able to sort of visualize it. So all we have so far, this formless and empty earth, and we have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, right? So you can already see this is going to be ridiculous because there's the water, right? What's going on with the water? Well, again, ancient author telling an ancient story to an ancient audience in the ancient Near Eastern world, right? Among all of the nations surrounding Israel, they all have creation stories. They all have creation stories and all of their creation stories share this common element that the the world, the earth as we know it, emerges from the waters of chaos, the chaotic primordial waters. Now, when I say earth, What's the picture that comes to your mind? There's a picture that comes to your mind that that for all of us in this room is almost exactly the same, right? Yes, a blue marble, right? It's a blue marble, a a sphere, blue marble, set against the backdrop of black space, and there's some some land masses that are brown and maybe some clouds that are floating that are white. But all of us in this room, 21st century uh, readers, have a common picture when we hear earth, don't we? How long has that been the common picture shared by everybody? Really only as long ago as we were able to send a camera up there to take that picture, which is just decades ago. Now, before that, there was a sense that the earth was a globe, that it was round, right? That we moved away from flat earth a long time ago. And yet, that picture in our heads of earth that we all share is very, very recent. In the ancient Near Eastern world, when this story was written, they all had a common picture in their head. 
and it looked a little bit like the silly drawing that I'm about to draw for you. So that's the reason that I'm going to draw this ridiculous drawing, because I want to give you a little bit of a picture of what scholars refer to as um, ancient cosmic geography, right? What the world looked like, the mental image of the world for ancient people. This is not going to translate very well for the podcast, but uh, they'll just have to deal with it. You can Google ancient cosmic geography and you can see images, right? So all we have so far is water because all of the, the picture from the ancient world is creation emerges out of the chaos waters. But here's the thing. In those other ancient stories, oftentimes that water was depicted as a god or a goddess, and oftentimes what you had is you had battle, you had, you had um, conflict. That in the, uh, in the Babylonian story, Enuma Elish, the, the goddess of the chaos waters was a goddess named Tiamat. And she got into a battle with the high god Marduk. And Marduk and Tiamat get locked into this battle and he kills her and then fillets her body. And it's from filleting her body that he forms the earth, the material world. How's that for an interesting creation story? Now, um, gosh, the clock is running really fast. Um, I once heard a scholar say something that I think is really profound. He said, um, your creation story determines the trajectory of your culture. Right? Think about that for a second. Your creation story determines the trajectory of your culture, what kind of culture you become is largely determined by your origin. So if an origin story begins with conflict, violence, uh, a male god filleting the body of a female god, what kind of culture is that likely to give rise to? A culture of violence, conflict, male domination of women. And that is absolutely the kind of culture that the Babylonians had. Part of what's happening with the ancient story and the ancient storyteller is we, he's saying, no, 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 no. We have a very, very different story. Because here we have just the spirit of God just hanging out, hovering over the waters. Um, all right, we better, we better move on, Carson. So what's next? Verse, Verse three. We, yeah. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Okay, pause right there. Um, light and dark, right? On the first day, God creates light and dark. Now, we already are attuned to the fact that this isn't a modern scientific story, right? Because what constitutes a 24-hour day? Why is the day 24 hours? It takes that it takes the earth 24 hours to rotate around its axis, right? So 24 hours that you're, or 12 hours roughly that you're exposed to the sunlight and 12 hours roughly that you're not. But here in this story, we actually have light and dark without sun and moon. What you're going to see is that sun and moon actually come in on day four. Because what you have in this story is tohu vavohu, formless and empty, and then it's followed by three days of forming and then three days of filling. And what God forms on day one, he fills on day four. What he forms on day two, he fills on day five. What he forms on day three, he fills on day six. So he's first addressing the formlessness. He creates the, the form, the structure, right? He orders the chaos by creating light and dark, Okay. Carson, next verse. Uh, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. Okay, God, Paul, oh, no, keep going. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation. Hang on real quick. Are we still on, what day are we on? We are on day, I think we're on the third day. Okay. So day one is light and dark. Day two, we get this idea of this introduction of this, the NIV translates a vault. Some of your translations may, may say firmament. The Hebrew word is rakia. Let me hear you say rakia. 
rakia, rakia. And the rakia, this, this vault, this firmament, actually the ancient world, they all had this concept of a vault that was holding up water above and water below. They actually believed that this dome was solid and that there was water up there. Now, why on earth might they believe there's water up there? What do you see when you look up? And what color is the sky? Blue. And what sometimes falls down from the sky? Rain, water, right? They actually, so this is what we refer to as the language of appearances. You look up and it looks like there's water up there. And sometimes the water comes down through the rakia. So on the second day, what you have is you have um, the, yeah, you have the waters and the sky. Okay, waters and sky. And then did we move on to, to day three? Oh, we are currently on the third day. We're on the third day, right? And what do we get on the third day? Yeah, um, the land, right? So um, we got the land here on the third day. I'm going to actually make the land a little bit more, not just a straight line, but we're going to actually have a little bit of, uh, right? There's the land. How about that? I told you ridiculous, didn't I? It's ridiculous, right? But on three, we have the land and we have vegetation. I'm just going to write plants because it's less letters, right? Land and plants, okay? This is what we get on the first three days. Now, let's move on to day four. Um, so pick up in verse 14. And God said, let, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light ridiculous, right? I told to you. govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault and the sky to give, life on the, give light on the earth to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and then there was morning, the fourth day. Okay, pause right there. Okay, so we get the sun. Golly, that's really, I mean, this is just, I told you ridiculous, but this is worse than I thought, right? We get the sun and the moon, right? So three days forming, the first day, the separation, the ordering of the chaos, light and dark. The fourth day, we get now the filling, sun and moon. Now, before Carson reads day five, let me just ask you, what do you think's coming? If day two has waters and sky, what are we going to get on day five? What fills the waters and the sky? Fish and birds. Go ahead, Carson. And God said, let the water with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing in which water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in numbers and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and then there was morning, the fifth day. Okay, pause right there. Now, I did leave out something earlier, right? We got some vegetation back on... Uh what do we get that? That's on, uh, on uh, yeah, you like that? It looks like a broccoli instead of a tree. It's supposed to be a tree, right? We'll get some little grasses growing up over here. So we missed that. But uh, okay, so land and plants, day three. So what's coming on day six? Go ahead and read day six for us, Carson. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock and the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that he, they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. There will be yours for food. And, it, and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and then there was morning, the sixth day. All right, pause right there. And I think you can be done. Thank you, Carson, so much. Let's give Carson a hand. All right. Now, you're going, Jones, why are you doing this ridiculous thing and making Carson read all that? The, the, the point I hope will come through in a minute, right? What we have is a very highly stylized account of God's creative work. Three days of forming, three days of filling. As ridiculous as this looks, and I didn't write a, draw an animal because the humans are bad enough, but I did give the woman some long hair there. So as ridiculous as this is, the reason it's there is to show you this is actually something like the mental picture that they would have of the earth. Now, what we have is God accommodating himself to ancient understanding, that he's not actually fixing all their misunderstandings. Like, it seems as though ancient Hebrews, like all ancient people, believed that the rakia was a, a solid dome holding up water up there. Does that mean if we believe the Bible that we have to believe that there's a solid dome holding up water? No. That's not the point that the, that the author is trying to make. The author is trying to talk about who did it and Why? And ultimately, who did it is God, the one true God of the Bible. And, and here's what I hope will make a little bit of sense of this ridiculous drawing that I've tried to make, is by actually showing you a legitimate ancient drawing of ancient cosmology. This comes from the Egyptians. And again, if we take a traditional view that Moses is writing this coming as the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, they would have had that as their backdrop, that as their understanding, that as the, the worldview that they're emerging out of. And watch this. This is ancient Egyptian cosmology. The question I want to ask is, does any of that look vaguely familiar? What you have is sun and moon and the, the Hebrew word rakia and the land and the sky holding up the dome above the land. This is ancient Egyptian cosmology, but here's the thing. In ancient Egypt, this is a god, and this is a god, and, and, and this is a god, and, and the, I didn't put the fish and the, the birds, these are gods. What, what the author is doing is he's taking that ancient picture that everybody shared, just like you and I share the picture of the earth, and he's saying, no, 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 they've all got it wrong. It's, it's our god, the the. The, the Hebrew God, the, the one true God, the God of the Bible who made it all. That these aren't all other gods. There is one God and he made it all and he made it merely by the direct declaration of his mouth. Right? The preoccupation of the ancient storyteller is who? That is our God, the one true God. And why? And the why is that he's made it to be the place where his image bearers dwell with him. He says, verse 26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. In uh, ancient Hebrew, the, the word uh, image is the word tselem. Let me hear you say tselem. You gotta do the t on the front end, right? T and S together, tselem. Tselem, and the Tselem was, the, was a statue uh, of, a, of the other gods, the other gods of Israel's neighbors. Every neighbor am among the countries around Israel had a temple. And at the center of their temple was an image, and that image was of their god. The only ancient temple in the Near East that didn't have a temple was Israel's. I'm sorry, that didn't have an image was Israel's. They had a temple, but they didn't have an image in the center of the temple. Why? Because God said... You shall not make an image of me. Why? God has made an image of himself. And scholars are able to go back and actually trace this picture 
of creation in Genesis 1 and then on into Genesis chapter 2 and draw multiple parallels. I won't get all into the details with you tonight, but multiple parallels between the, the ancient garden in Genesis 1 and 2 and the later temple. And what's really interesting is among Israel's neighbors, when they would dedicate a temple to their God, they would go through this elaborate um, ceremony of dedicating the temple. And, and that ceremony, those, that ceremony to dedicate the temple, you know how long it would last? Six days. And you know what happened at the very end of that um, dedication of the ancient temple? What was the last thing to go into the center of the temple? The image of the God, the statue of their God. What you have here is the ancient storyteller telling a story that says, no, 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 no. All the things that our neighbors worship as God, the one true God made them by speaking them into existence. He's the one who did it. Why? To create this world as his temple, the place where he dwells. In fact, if we read on to day seven, what, what do you have on day seven? Anybody remember? What does God do on day seven? He rests. Where does a king rest? In a temple. Um, in, in, in his, right, that, that you actually find this later in the Psalms. There's a parallel between the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, and the resting place of God. That what you have is this account of God resting in his creation that he's made as a place to dwell with his image bearers so that they might serve him and worship him, that they might rule on his behalf. Interestingly, this idea of image in the ancient world, a king, when he conquered a territory, would go into that territory and he would set up a statue of himself as a way of saying, I'm the one who rules this land. Uh, you saw this in, uh, in um, the Soviet Union. Uh, the leaders of the Soviet Union would go around to the, all the, the um, Soviet republics and they would put up statues of, of Lenin, put up statues of Stalin to, to remind the people who was the ruler. And what God does when he establishes human beings as his image bearers is that they are there to represent his rule. And then what does he say that he's created them for? He says to let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And he says, fill the earth and subdue it. To rule, to fill, and to subdue. This idea of what's referred to as the cultural mandate. This is what human beings are for. We have in Genesis 1 an ancient story from an ancient author to an ancient audience, not preoccupied with our questions about when and how, but preoccupied with the questions of who and why. And speaking to that audience, I think he's done a marvelous job of talking about the truth of who God is. He is the one true creator who has made everything. And why? To create human beings to bear his image in the world, to represent his rule, to rule on his behalf. Since he made human beings to be those who would see to it that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Does that sound familiar to anybody? This is what it means for us to be human. Now, how do we tie all this together? I think part of where we get so hung up in this apparent tension between faith and science is we want Genesis to do what Genesis never set out to do, to answer our questions, to address our preoccupations, to recognize rather what Genesis set out to do, to tell us about the truth of the one true God who made heaven and earth and for what purpose that he made them. And so when we come to the end of this account, Sandra Richter has captured it this way. She says, the Bible in all its parts is intended to communicate to humanity the realities of redemption. Over the centuries, the church has stumbled when it's forgotten this truth and has thereby ironically damaged the authority of the book for which it draws its life. Too often in our zeal for the worldwide influence of this book, we forget that it was not intended to be an exhaustive uh, ancient world history or a guide to biology and paleontology of creation, or even a handbook on social reform. 
we forget that this book was cast upon the waters of history for one very specific, completely essential, and desperately necessary objective to tell the epic tale of God's ongoing quest to ransom his creation. The Bible tells us about who and why. Science gives us a lot of information about where and when, and I don't think that we have to choose one or the other. There are a variety of positions within that um, framework that we can think about, that we can explore, that we can examine the evidence, but I think we've created a false choice and have to recognize rather the agenda of the Bible is to tell us about God, to tell us about who he is, to tell us about why he has made this world that he has made, to tell us the epic story of redemption. You guys have been very patient with me. I've covered a whole lot of ground. I hope I haven't just confused you all the more, but actually brought a little bit of clarity around uh, thinking about some of these complicated issues. There's a lot more that we could actually get into that we had to jump over for the sake of time. Um, But anyway, I've had a ton of fun with you tonight. What we'll do going on from here, the rest of these sessions won't be me up here just lecturing the whole time. In fact, we're going to have it more in a discussion format with a panel up here. But tonight I wanted to try to to cover some of this ground with you. Do we have, are we going to do the the questions? So come on up, Camille, and tell us what we're doing from here. Sorry, I'm carrying this giant bowl. (laughs) (laughs) The biggest bowl I've ever, ever seen. Thanks, Hannah. Okay, so we're going to do the, the raffle after the Q&A, so stick around for that. Um, but yeah, so this is your chance. If you have any questions from what you just heard, go ahead, put it in there now. And then what's going to happen is Chad is going to post the questions. Are you ready, Chad? Chad's giving me a thumbs up. So he's going to post the questions, I think one at a time, on the screens, and we're going to give you an opportunity to answer All right, them. right, we'll see. Hopefully it won't be too painful. <laughs> Are you ready with the first question? Awesome. Okay. Yeah. What do you think about the concept of God creating a mature earth, but in a literal seven-day period? Is that a faithful understanding of both scripture and science? That's a great question. So the idea is, especially held by those who hold to a young earth creation view, right? The earth is 6,000 years old, but we have all this appearance that it's much, much older. So the idea is God creating a mature earth. This is the appearance of age. The analogy sometimes made is if God created Adam, a a, a, a mature adult, a, a human being, mature adult rather than an infant that, that grew. And so could it be that the whole universe, God created it appearing old? And the answer to that question, could that happen? Absolutely. Could God do that? Absolutely. Um, God can do whatever he wants. Could God, let me put it this way. Could God create the whole universe in six literal, literal 24-hour days? The answer to that question is, could he? Absolutely he could. I, I mean, I, the, the, the next question is, why did it take him that long, right? Because the way the story goes is he speaks and it comes into existence. This isn't God like working and slaving and getting all sweaty and hot, right? Then he comes the seventh day exhausted. No, he speaks and it comes to his existence. So could God create in six literal 24-hour days? Absolutely he could. Could it be that God created the world with the appearance of age? It's possible. The challenge that I have with that is that then what happens is that God creates this evidence that actually winds up then misleading people, right? So many people have then looked at this appearance of age and seen it and said, oh, the the universe is billions of years old. The earth is billions of years old. And people are misled by this appearance that everything's old. And I struggle with the idea that God would, would do that in such a way that would actually wind up misleading people. Is it possible? Yes. Is, is the young earth creation view a, a viable Christian view with this idea of appearance of age? Yes, it certainly is consistent with the teaching of the Bible. But what I'm suggesting, the whole point I think in some ways of tonight is the Bible doesn't require us to hold to that kind of view. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. What's the next question? If this part of Genesis is a highly stylized version of a true story, how do we know that other biblical stories aren't also highly stylized? That's a great question. So a big part of it is actually paying attention to the genre, right? 
Some of what we have in the Bible is straightforward historical account. Some of what we have in the Bible is poetry. Some of what we have in the Bible is apocalyptic. When you get to the book of Revelation, we'll talk about that on the last of this series. We have this, again, very highly stylized account of real future events. So part of it is just wrestling with what is the genre of what we have going here. And we're going to talk a lot more about that next week because next week we're going to get in the Garden of Eden story. And in the Garden of Eden, you have a man, Adam, and his name means human. We have a woman, Eve, whose name means life. We have a snake that talks and two apparently magic trees, right? In a garden called Eden, which means delight. A man named human and his wife named life in a garden called delight with two, two magic trees and a talking snake. We've got to wrestle with that. What is that a highly stylized account of real past events? So we have to wrestle with what is the genre. And so when we come to Genesis 1, we deal with this question of genre. And that's where I was suggesting all of the elements, seven words in the first verse, 14 words in the second verse, the repeated patterns of seven throughout, the seven days of creation that fits with these uh, ancient uh, temple uh, uh, inauguration ceremonies, all of these actually point to, and the, the, the rhythm that pulses throughout, all these point to, there's pointers in the text itself that what we have here is a stylized kind of account that's uh, trying to accomplish a different kind of purpose. Yeah. I love when the answer is, come back next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thanks. Okay, our next question is, how does the entrance of sin and death fit into the mature earth theory or the other longer time frame theories? Is that How's another the next time? Sin and death. Yeah, so one of the things that I think sometimes uh, people wrestle with around this question is um, the idea is that when you're reading the, the biblical text um, and you get into Genesis 2 and then on into Genesis 3, that, that death comes in as a consequence of sin. And therefore, there is no death prior to sin. But I think one of the things, and again, we'll deal with this a little bit more next week, but one of the things that we have to address is that in the text itself, it doesn't make it explicitly clear that the death being referred to there is all death versus human death. The focus of the story actually seems to be more on the consequence of human sin causing spiritual death. Um, that, that also is concomitant to that then is physical death as a consequence of this spiritual death that comes with sin. Um, that that's bad, right? That's not the way that God intended it. But again, if you go back pre-fall, is it possible that, that animals died prior to the fall? Um, and the text itself, I don't think, explicitly excludes that. And then you have the idea that God has created these um, ancient animals uh, that are carnivores. And so could it be possible that actually that uh, the process of animals killing one another, animal death, isn't something that is inherently bad, but what we have referred to in the text itself is specifically with regard to uh, human death that comes as a consequence of sin. So there's a bunch of words around that. Again, come back next week because we're going to address that even more in detail then. Yeah, that, I've not heard that before, so that's cool. Um, okay, if I want to begin talking about this topic with my friends, where should I start? That's yeah, a great question. I think that's a great question. Um, I think part of the point of all of this, it seems to me, is to say um, that there are multiple ways that Christians understand the relationship between creation, faith, and science. And that as Christians, we don't have to reject the evidence of science in order to believe the Bible. Um, I mean, I remember my son, Will, when he was in fifth grade, had been exposed to kind of the young earth, exclusively young earth creation view. And I remember saying to him, um, as he's kind of telling me about some of this stuff, I said, just know that this isn't the only Christian way to read those stories. And he kind of looked at me with big eyes, like, you know, what, what, what does that mean? Um, but, but again, part of what I've been trying to convey in, in talking about understanding this ancient text in the ancient world to an ancient audience is the agenda of, of the storyteller, the agenda of Moses writing to ancient Israel isn't the same agenda that we have today. And that there are ways for us to believe the Bible about God created everything that exists and to see the evidence of science as the way that God went about 
doing the work that he's done so that these two things aren't fundamentally incompatible. We're not forced to choose between one or the other. Right, I know. I, I was thinking about that in my notes where I wrote down the who and the why. Yeah. And so I love that, to think of the story that way. Do we have time for one more? Yeah, one more. Okay, what topic in this series are you most excited oh, wow. about? Yeah, that's a really fun question. I'm, honestly, I'm excited about all of them. I, I, I feel like I um, sort of dumped a huge load of things on you guys tonight, so hopefully you weren't uh, overwhelmed and you were able to put some pieces together from what we talked about. I'm really excited to talk about men and women in the Bible in the ancient world because we have a lot of texts that are like, okay, what, how do we deal with polygamy and, and just some really ugly kinds of things that we see that are here in the Bible? Is this what God intended for the relationship between men and women? Or how do we understand God's intention? How do we understand the nature of what was happening uh, more broadly in the ancient world and the ways in which uh, the people of Israel were actually influenced by that? And so uh, the chance to deal with some of that. Um, I'm really excited to, to do the night that's on... Um, uh, church and culture then and now. And we're going to talk about some big pressing kinds of cultural topics. But we're going to look at the history of the church, the early church, for what it has to teach us about culture now. And then the very last one where we deal with Revelation, I'm excited to bring in via Zoom, uh, my friend Caitlin Schess. Uh, she's written a book called Liturgy of Politics. And one of the things that's what really interesting about reading Revelation is that there's a lot in there about the politics of the first century world and the relationship of the church to the empire. And so it'll be a lot of fun to uh, engage with Caitlin around topics uh, related to that on the last week. That's awesome. Well, guys, can y'all please give Barry a round of applause? I <laughs> Thank mean, you, guys. Thanks this for being incredible. here. incredible. Thank you so much, Barry, for um, spending time with us tonight. Uh, if you guys got the e-letter, um, I wrote a little bit in there about what it was like when this series um, came about. Really, Barry was like, hey, I've got this idea, and um, just shared with me. He was like, what if we went deeper? What if we went deeper than we can on a Sunday morning, and we did it through young adults? So thank you guys so much for coming tonight.